Good afternoon. We have got another full house, and it's great to see. And I know we've got a few people still finding seats, but I'm going to get going. Um, good afternoon again. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm glad to see you. Welcome to another banner lecture and another full house. And as always, I would like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, and I think many of us love the Outer Banks. Many of us probably wish we were in the Outer Banks right now, but this is the second, this is the second best thing. You're going to hear a great talk. The Outer Banks have long enticed Virginians with the lure of sun, sky, and sea. But despite this idyllic appeal, these once isolated barrier islands have also witnessed a turbulent past. Pirates, hurricanes, shipwrecks, and U-boats all make their appearance in the varied story of the Outer Banks. And that story has become the special expertise of our speaker today. Ray McAllister is an award-winning writer well-known to everyone in Central Virginia. He was a newspaper reporter for 14 years and then a regular columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch from 1988 through 2007. I suspect many of you were devoted followers of his column. A collection of the more humorous of them appeared in 1995 under the title, and I think it's a great title, Reflections, Objects in Mirror Appear Backwards, <laughs> But Maybe It's Me. In recent years, he's become an independent writer, and his last few books have made him the established chronicler of coastal North Carolina. Two of his books tell the stories of Topsail Island and Wrightsville Beach, and both won prizes by the North Carolina Society of Historians and were both nominated for Library of Virginia Literary Awards. Earlier this year, his latest volume appeared. That was the free copy, you giveaway copy there. And you can buy your signed copy in our museum shop after the lecture. One Virginia author called this book an elegant meditation on Hatteras Island, its history, and its people. Another said, every line of this colorful, detailed, fluently written, and thoroughly enjoyable portrait of Hatteras Island brings the place to vivid life. So bringing it to vivid life for us today, please welcome Ray McAllister, who will speak to us about his latest book, Hatteras Island, Keeper of the Outer Banks. Thank you all. Thank you, first of all, Paul, Stuart Bryan, the rest of the Virginia Historical Society. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you all for coming. It's uh, quite a large crowd. I suspect uh, many of you wonder why I'm here, what happened to the real historians. <laughs> well, the real historians are all on vacation. Many of them are at the Outer Banks, so we can talk about the Outer Banks here in their absence. I began writing, I've written three books now. Well, I'll talk a little bit about the first two and then more about the, the new one on Hatteras. A couple of years ago when we first visited Topsail Island at the urging of our oldest daughter. Terrific place. I loved it. Looked for a book that sort of explained what I found so attractive about it. Found a book but didn't really capture the spirit. Came back, wrote a column for the Times-Dispatch got much more re response than I should have. It was really overwhelming. Everybody said, you really captured it, or I don't know the place, but I'd love it. A lot of people said, you need to write a book about it. 
few people said, you need not to write a book about it. <laughs> let's keep the secret. Let's keep it to ourselves. However, there's already some building going on, so I think the secret was out. But I want to talk a little bit about these books that are based on the, the barrier islands of North Carolina. The Outer Banks are the best known of these barrier islands. They run from roughly 10 miles inside Virginia, by the way, on through Cape Hatteras, and then they make a slight angle down to Cape Lookout. But beyond that, the barrier islands extend anyway. They are essentially storm absorbers. They, they take the hurricanes, they take the waves, they take the wind. They're often uh, the, the flooding, they take the flooding. They're often redefined by storms. Inlets close, inlets reopen. There's what we, uh, we people tend to call erosion, but the experts call migration. The islands actually move. Generally, they move south and west toward the mainland. But they're, uh, it's not like building in Kansas. If you want to build a home there, you're renting the property. You're not owning it. And over time, a lot of these houses disappear into the sea. You've seen, you've seen photographs. You've seen footage of that. So they really are, there's, a, there's a wild element to it. And as Paul alluded, um, it's been an attraction for Virginians for many years. And I think there are a couple of reasons. One is uh, what a friend of mine calls the, uh, the travel industry standard, that everybody vacations one state to the south. <laughs> and if you think about that, there's something to that. You want to be within a day's drive. You want to get someplace warmer. I know when the Virginia travel industry advertises, they don't market to the south. They market north. Everybody vacations one state south. And then I think the Outer Banks and the Barrier Islands in general are really, they're unique. They are, they're wild places. They were historically inhospitable places. But now they've become resorts, yet they've maintained that wild element as well. What I'm going to do is go through the, uh, some of the, uh, the highlights, historic highlights, and some of the stories of the island today, and then we'll have some questions afterwards. And I'm hoping I can work this. These are the three books, and let's start with Topsail Island. The title, Mayberry by the Sea, by the way, comes from several people on the island. That's sort of the moniker they've put on it, and it really is. It's a small-town atmosphere. People do leave their houses unlocked. Uh, I haven't checked them all, but I've, I've heard that <laughs> maybe I, I wanted that disclaimer up front. The... Uh, in some, and it's a slightly mocking but more sincerely uh, held uh, nickname for the, the island. It is that sort of feel. Three items appear in all three of these books in different forms. Now, the books are all different because each place is different, but, but I've included something on pirates, hurricanes, and fishing piers in each of the books. You can't write about the North Carolina coast without writing about pirates, and particularly about Blackbeard, who in 1717 and 1718 terrorized shipping. Eventually, he met his death at uh, Ocracoke Inlet at the hands of a, uh, a British naval lieutenant who was sent by the, the uh, royal governor of Virginia because Blackbeard was in cahoots, in essence, with the governor of North Carolina. And... North Carolinians had to appeal to Virginia to, uh, to get, get Blackbeard. It's not even clear where Blackbeard was. He, he famously took over Charleston. He settled in Bath, North Carolina, for quite a bit. He was clearly up and down the coast. And as uh, a, a woman who started the museum in Topsail Beach says, 
it's, it's reasonable to assume that he stopped on Topsail Island, but nobody knows for sure. I think I have a pretty good idea that he did, though, because there is, has been both a, a Blackbeard's campground and a Blackbeard's miniature golf course on Topsail Island. <laughs> And actually, I, I should go further than that. He, he owned, there is a Teaches Marina in Hatteras Village. There is another uh, miniature golf course up near Kitty Hawk. So apparently he franchised these uh, <laughs> miniature golf courses. Let me tell you about the gold hole. There are only two really strong historic stories on Topsail Island. One is the gold hole, fascinating story. 1937, a New York syndicate comes down including the mayor of, I mean, the brother of the mayor of New York, Jimmy Walker, they bring together a lot of money, hire a lot of locals, and begin digging, put up a huge apparatus, begin digging, going down. Nobody's quite sure. Topsail Island is in the middle of nowhere. They don't know what's going on. Nobody gets out there very often. Supposedly, they're looking for treasure of some sort. Some Wilmington newspaper reporters come out, and it turns out they're looking for a Spanish galleon, and they, they find a piece of finished wood as if it were from a ship. They dig for four years, a very elaborate, expensive operation. 1941, they shut up and go home. To this day, nobody knows what happened. Did they, did they find gold? Did they not find gold? Was it an investment scam? Nobody knows. But the, uh, the gold hole has remained, though it is now basically a mosquito-filled in area. It's not a pleasant place, but for years, the people of Topsail used it to, to throw garbage in. Uh, sofas, refrigerators, the whole bit, they just disappeared from sight. But, it, but it's a big mystery of Topsail. The, uh, the other big story on Topsail is what they call Operation Bumblebee. 1946 to 1948, military took over the, uh, the island and set up Navy, uh, a Navy missile program. This up here in the upper left is the uh, observation, observation tower, or the control tower, I'm sorry, and the assembly building where the missiles were developed. And they would shoot them out, the, and shoot them out, and they turn them up the island, which is 26 miles long, by these observation towers. And in, 19, uh, in 1948, the missiles had gotten so good they had outgrown the 26-mile-long island, so they allowed the, the, uh, the people back on the island. And these remain now, these towers, which uh, this one right here is on the uh, historic register, the one in the middle. And that's the, the other big historic event. And both of these are uh, explained more in the uh, museum, which is that blue building in the upper left, the, the old assembly building. A lot of my topsail book is sort of quaint little stories that nobody had heard about in years. This was a uh, 1985 uh, 4th of July celebration on one of the piers. There used to be nine piers on Topsail, by the way. There are three now. They've given way to economics and to storms. In fact, one fellow in North Topsail said his fishing pier is worth $2.5 million. If he tears it down so homes can be developed, it's worth $4 million. But you know, there were 300 people on this pier for a, a celebration in, uh, on July 4th of uh, 85, and the, the fireworks were shot at an angle, sending everybody on the pier to one, one side. Pier collapsed. They all went in the water. It was a nightmare. There were electric wires in the water. There were ambulances coming from everywhere. Word got out to the mainland, 
And so everybody in the mainland started rushing over. And the word also got out that it was an ocean pier, not a sound pier, and that there were thousands in the water. So it was, it was, a, it was a nightmare. But that's a, I've looked for little stories like that. One is the day the bear came to Topsail Beach. <laughs> 1997, I think it was, um, the local police chief got the call there was a bear that had escaped. And he didn't buy it. They looked for hours and hours. Finally found it. Um, and he took this, this next picture, which is, uh, <laughs> that's one of the great pictures of Topsail. And if you go to the Chamber of Commerce, you can buy it. It's a fundraiser down there. But he says what he wished he had done was taken the next picture. Two seconds later, there was nobody on the beach. <laughs> this is Gene Beasley, who runs one of two sea turtles-only hospitals in the country. And Topsail is legendary for the turtles. Uh, they, they save them. They come in cut up, wounded, and they nurse them back to health. Usually takes about a year, and they can release them. Uh, and let me show you a release. They used to make these public but the crowds were too big. And you have, uh, you'd have some men who would get a little liquored up and go out and start wrestling with the turtles in the ocean. But, you know, why is it always men who do that, by the way? <laughs> but this is, uh, this is what it is now. They, they do tell some of the school groups around. School groups are welcome, but they don't tell the public when they're going to be. But these are the turtles, and this is what they're like. And it's, it's, a, it's a terrific... And this is really the only tourist attraction on the island now is the Sea Turtle Hospital. It's the only tourist attraction per se. Wrightsville Beach was the follow-up. My parents lived down by Wrightsville and Topsail, by the way, which is how, how we got involved. Wrightsville has a lot more history in, this, in the traditional sense, although I talked to a historian in doing these books, and he said that uh, I talked to him for the Topsail book, and he said he really didn't have any history about Wrightsville because he didn't think of, think of it in a historic sense. He thought of it as a beach, and he's wrong. Okay. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of terrific history about, uh, about Wrightsville Beach. Let me back up. This is the, uh, right there, in the upper part, you can see that curved trolley track. Trolleys ran from 1902 to 1940. Wrightsville Beach was basically built out as sort of an extension from Wilmington, and it took, took years to get out there, and there were no cars allowed on the island until 1935. You know, you know how people say that a, an island or a, a, a resort paradise started going downhill? And people will say, well, when it started going downhill in 2000. Or, there are people alive who say, no, 1935 was when Wrightsville started going downhill. <laughs> but it's very well, it's built up now. This is essentially the same view today. These are the old beach trolleys. And this was, uh, this was quite the event. Uh, and I'll show you after a while. Big hotels started building on, uh, on the island. The most famous was the Oceanic. But in 1934, this is what happened to the Oceanic. Uh, most islands, you have trouble with hurricanes and storms. Wrightsville, you had trouble with the fires. Historically, there were fires, and they would just wipe out, wipe out uh, large segments of the town. Everything was built of wood, difficult for fire equipment to get in. Their uh, winds were high winds. In fact, I was talking to uh, the de facto historian of the island lives down there, and he was telling me about, about the day his father took him to the edge of, um, of the water to watch this fire, and they saw their own cottage burning down. 
Well, he told me also that in 1976, his parents' home he, he, they rebuilt burned down as well. And what he, didn't, what he didn't tell me for a while was that his father actually perished in that fire. Uh, he, was, uh, he had gone back in to look for his wife who had already escaped, and he was killed in that fire. But fires, and, like hurricanes, are a big deal. This was another big ho hotel. The, uh, whoops, have I skipped one? No, I guess not. The uh, Seashore Hotel, swimming was a, a big event. This is the, the Lumina Pavilion was the big thing in Wrightsville Beach and one of the big facilities in the southeast. It was called the Atlantic, it made Wrightsville the Atlantic City of the South. People came from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta. They came to Wrightsville Beach. This is a terrific picture I was able to find to include in the book. They actually had a movie theater, a, a screen set up in the surf. They had a, a grandstand up here on the right, as you can see. That's where people watched it. But they, would, uh, they also would sit underneath for free if they didn't want to. Here's another, uh, another quaint story uh, came out of nowhere I just found and stumbled on. The uh, 1948 killer smog of Denora, Pennsylvania killed 20 or 21 people. It, nobody quite knew about smog yet, inversions, and what caused them. It was a big story. A lot of people were very sick. Wrightsville Beach and Wilmington got together and flew down 40 people for a week's vacation in, uh, in Wrightsville Beach, and it became national news. 1928, another, another quirky story in Wrightsville, the beaching of the whale called, they called Trouble. It took a couple of weeks to get out, but it became a huge tourist event. In the two weeks it was there, 50,000 people attended it, including 15,000 on Easter Sunday. And remember, back then, there was no way to get to the island other than you could walk to it across the bridge or uh, take a trolley across. There was no car driving. Storms are always bad. This is a typical shot from 1929. This is Hurricane Hazel in 1954, uh, flipping boats up on end. You always have to watch out for uh, hurricanes. I say the best time to visit these islands is maybe the fall, September, crowds are down, but they're still terrific, unless they're a hurricane, then it would not be the best time. <laughs> okay, on to Hatteras. This was the third book. Uh, the publisher wanted to know where we, what we wanted to do, and my wife and I used to visit Hatteras every September in the early 80s, and then our, our children ended up reaching school age, and you could never do that September thing, so we sort of drifted away, but we always liked Hatteras. First time I ever went there, we were driving at night, we decided to stay near the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, which was the only place I knew on the island, of course. And uh, we kept driving. It's down Highway 12. All the way, you know, we were looking for the lighthouse, didn't see anything. We finally got to Hatteras Village, which is obviously where the lighthouse is. Hatteras Lighthouse would be in Hatteras Village. So we stayed, stayed there overnight, got up in the morning. They said, well, no, actually, it's 15 miles behind you. <laughs> there... It's in Buxton, and there are three villages closer to it than Hatteras Village. So this is a, this is a map actually from the book. Uh, a local fellow, Roy Wilhelm, does the maps for me and does a terrific job. But I include this to show you that the Outer Banks, and particularly Hatteras, are really only marginally part of North Carolina. They are much more a part of the Atlantic Ocean, it seems to me. They are as much as uh, 30 miles from the mainland, and they are really at the mercy of the elements. They are 
there, there's no way to get easily from there to anywhere resembling civilization, for that matter. Here's a, a 1590 map that I have tilted on its side. This is a well-known well -known map from 1590, and you can see that essentially the Outer Banks are more or less as they are today. It's just that the, the inlets are in different places and they've been pushed in and moved various places. The formation's the same, but just the, uh, the uh, sp specifics are a little different. Um, oh, this is our buddy Blackbeard. He was definitely in the area. <laughs> And again, as I said, he has a, he's, he set up Teaches Marina right there in Hatteras Village. He was an entrepreneur even back in those days. The, uh, he actually, uh, and I've talked with a number of experts, he was in, he was the fellow who was controlling shipping. I mean, he was the bad guy, but he was controlling who got through. He, led, he left uh, the locals alone. He wasn't bothered with them. He was m mostly interested in British ships or foreign ships, that, that type of thing. Uh, the other early visitors, I guess, or inhabitants of Hatteras, as with the other islands, were the Native Americans. Mostly these, these islands in the early days were largely uninhabited, but they were frequented for purposes of fishing and hunting and that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes livestock was allowed to graze on the, the islands. There's a terrific little museum, and you've got to be looking for it. It's in the town of Frisco. It's uh, a... Native American Museum, and it's set up by people who do it for the love of the museum. I mean, it is, they are getting by on a shoestring, but it's, it's worth stopping by and putting a little something in their uh, donation jar if you ever get a chance. In the early days, Hatteras uh, was essentially a place for fishing and a little bit of uh, agriculture. One of the things that was grown was corn, and mills were used to grind the corn, and they were all over the island. We've got uh, some quotes from Civil War soldiers who were surprised at how many windmills there were on, tops of, on uh, Hatteras Island, and this is one from 1900, roughly. This is, we had, we've talked a little bit about... Uh, the wars on the island. Hatteras has been involved in four or five wars, uh, mo most notably perhaps the Civil War. Hatteras, it, it was an interesting location. North Carolina was a southern state. Hatteras was a northern sympathizing entity of that southern state. This is a, uh, this is a, a rendering from the, the Battle of Hatteras, which early on in the war the, uh, the Union came in during a two-day battle, took over two Confederate forts, and most of the war, the North occupied Hatteras Island. Most of the Hatteras Island natives were northern sympathizers. Uh, they had no particular qualm with the federal government. They had, many of them had worked for, uh, say, the Lighthouse. They had federal jobs. What, what I always found amusing about this was uh, there's... Uh, there's always a different spin on everything, no matter where you are. In Hatteras Village, there's this, uh, this statue, and I think, and I can't really read the angle, but it's uh, America's first attempt at Civil War reconciliation. What this means, and you can interpret it the way you want to, is that the people of Hatteras declare the state of, New of North Carolina's secession to be null and void. <laughs> Now, if you've seen a map, Hatteras is not really the largest part of North Carolina. 
Nonetheless, they declared that, uh, that to be an invalid action and elected their own representatives, established the, the new state capital on Hatteras. Uh, this lasted a very short time until uh, the president, President Lincoln put uh, the state under military rule, but uh, I thought it was sort of a, a gutsy move, you know? Showed a little chutzpah. So, uh, there's also a, a classic story that I, I don't have time to go into, but uh, the Chickamacomico races that many of you know about occurred on Hatteras Island uh, during the Confederates trying to regain Hatteras actually drove the, the Northern Army down the island on foot. They're running on foot, as are the, the locals. They're running with them. And then the next day, the Union got reinforcements from the sea and then drove the Confederates back up. So they call it the Chickamacomico races, and it's, it's a good story. Confederates just uh, looked upon the islanders as being opportunists. You know, whoever would come along, they'd put, put up a white flag. <laughs> this is the, uh, the famous sinking of the Monitor. You, you all know the story of the, uh, the Monitor and the Merrimack or Virginia, depending upon what you'd like to call it. it uh, that battle didn't sink it, but a, a, one of the many Hatteras storms sunk it off, off the coast uh, during the Civil War. And in fact, if you come back here in November, the Banner, Banner Lecture is about the newfound discoveries concerning the Monitor, and you'll get the full story then. It's a good story. Uh, that's, uh, that's from Harper's Weekly shortly after it happened. The, uh, the sinking was, I think, uh, New Year's Eve of 1862, and I'm giving a nod, yes. I've actually got that right. So. And this came out the next month in Harper's Weekly. Okay, storms are a big part, and you cannot talk about Hatteras especially without talking about the storms. This is uh, 2003 Hurricane Isabel. This is up at the, toward the northern end of the island, Rodanthe. This is actually the uh, Rodanthe fishing pier, which was part of a resort with many cottages. Almost all of the cottages were wiped out, as was the pier house, as I'll show you here in a, in a sequence. That's what, that's what a hurricane does, and does it very quickly. By the way, if, uh, if you saw Knights in Rodanthe, the Rodanthe Pier is featured in that movie. But this is the same hurricane down at the southern end, Hatteras Village, pre-hurricane, post-hurricane, and you can see what it does with buildings. One of the motels that we've stayed at often is in Hatteras Village, a little place called the Seagull, and it was just thrown all around, and the daughter of the of the owners was trapped on the second floor during the hurricane. I mean, flooding came up that high, and they, they got her out, but they were afraid that she was not going to make it. It was the, the, the force of a hurricane is just devastating. Same hurricane. This is between Hatteras Village and Frisco. That's a new inlet that opened during that hurricane. There was no inlet there. That was, that was uh, uh, Isabel Inlet, and they did fill it in, but that's, that's what a hurricane does. So one of the uh, results is they very quickly knew that they needed life-saving efforts on the island. It's, the area is called the Graveyard of the Atlantic because there were so many shipwrecks. And the, uh, the life-saving station, the U.S. Life-Saving Service, started in the 1880s. And quickly, about every six or seven miles, structures were put up. Six and then later seven people, surfmen, worked here. And they had... Uh, they had brutal uh, conditions with which to affect 
rescues. Here's the uh, it's Chickamacomico Life Saving Station. It's been restored today. This was the surf boat used in the famous rescue of 1918 of the British tanker Merlot, which had struck a mine laid by a, a German U-boat. And it, it's, it's, it's a great story, not just because I wrote it. But uh, 1918, I'm sorry. Uh, the sea was almost literally on fire. There was fuel spilled everywhere, and it was on fire. And it's, it's an amazing story. And I'm, I'm truly surprised it hasn't been made into a film because it was, it was amazing. This is another famous rescue. I, I don't have time to go into all the, the details. And then this was the latest, or the last major rescue in uh, 1954, I want to say, from Chickamacomico. And by this time, they were sending out uh, breaches, buoys. They were sending out lines with a Lyle gun that you could actually save people. Uh, there's been an effort to restore some of these facilities. I showed you Chickamacomico, which has been privately redone. This is Little Kinnikeet, which is now going to be a National Park Service uh, restoration. And this one is Oregon Inlet. We took this photograph last year, and the state of North Carolina is restoring this, and this is what it's uh, been restored to so far this year. This is the... Uh, the Carol A. Deering, the, fa the famed ghost ship of Diamond Shoals. A lot of people talk about mysteries, and they're sort of fake mysteries. This is real mystery. This, this, uh, this ship, five-masted schooner, this is the last known picture that was ever taken, showed up stranded on the, uh, on the Hatteras shore as a surfman looked out and saw it, and there was nobody on board. There was, there was a cat on board, that was all. Food was laid out as if getting, being prepared for, for a, a meal. There were all sorts of strange uh, happenings. Uh, the pirates, I mean, the captain's log, had, the handwriting had been changed about a week earlier. Uh, there were three sets of uh, shoes in the captain's room. There were all sorts of uh, theories. There was a federal investigation. Five federal agencies were involved in the investigation. They never found out what happened. There, there, are, there are a lot of theories, but each, each one's plausible and each one's debunk, everything from mutiny to pirates to Bolshevik pirates uh, to lost in a hurricane, but there, there was no storm, no bad storm. Never, never was figured out what happened. To this day, it's, a, it's a, a big story. If you ever go down to Hatteras Village, the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum features this, and nobody knows what happened. This is uh, eventually some of the... Uh, Elements of the ship, including the capstan, uh, washed up on shore. It, it, it actually went down to Ocracoke Island and later came back in another storm at Hatteras Village, and now it's in the uh, graveyard of the Atlantic Museum. The, uh, the unknown story, I think, of North Carolina and, and maybe the East Coast was the fact that wars have been fought off, off of the shores. This, is especially, it was, this was true in World War I. It was especially true in World War II. For, for at least the first half of 1942, German U-boats were just, they, it was a shooting gallery. They were having their way with American and British shipping. And they captured, they, later they captured some, uh, some German seamen who said they, they couldn't believe it. It literally was like a, a, a shooting gallery. There was nobody to stop them. Everything was lighted from behind. All the lights on the islands were always on. You could just pick out whoever you wanted to, uh, to torpedo, to shoot. Finally, about midway through 1942, uh, the U.S. naval effort intensified, and they started doing a lot of things. Eventually, 
sank a couple of U-boats and sent the rest scurrying. But it's, it's an amazing story, and it was kept from the American public during that time. Now, people on the island knew because word would get around, and they would see bodies washing up on shore, or they would see oil coating the beach. So the people on the island knew, but generally the American public did not know. And even now, it's not, it's not well known. There, w- there, was a, uh, there was a woman at the time, this, this woman right here, Carol White. Her name is now Carol White Dillon. She was a tomboy. She was a 13-year-old tomboy at the time. And her teacher later wrote her story, which became known as Taffy of Torpedo Junction. And it's a classic children's book in North Carolina. In fact, it's mandatory reading in North Carolina. But this is the, the original Taffy, and she gets together and tells her story periodically. And she says almost nobody knows that there was all this uh, war activity on, on the island. In the early days, before Highway 12 was built in the 1950s, this is how you traveled Hatteras Island. It was, the, the, route, the route was called the Old 101, which meant there were 101 different ways to travel down. <laughs> you found the best of those 101 and tried to make it. Ideally, you would drive at low tide and close to the water. That was the the most firmly packed sand. If it was high tide, you'd be up in the loose sand, and it it wouldn't work, so you'd have to try it on the sand, and cars were forever getting stuck. One trick, though, was to deflate your tires. That's what what you did to drive the the beach, but that was how people got up and down. And you have to to understand, Hatteras was really... In the middle of nowhere, it was difficult traversing. It was difficult storms. There were very few people living there for the most part. Those who did mostly lived, uh, made a living through fishing. Uh, some were very lucky and got jobs with the life-saving stations, and that was actually status. That was real prestige to have a life-saving station job. But there was, there was not much there. There were a couple of villages here and there, and it was difficult getting between them, and you didn't want to get stuck, and you usually did. This is uh, this is old picture getting on the, the ferry to go to the island. That's how you got to the island. There was no bridge in that day. But uh, some enterprising brothers uh, ran the Manio Hatteras bus, which every day made the full trip from the southern end of the island all the way across, all the way up the island, across the ferry, and then on up to Manio, and then would return. A couple of the, uh, the interesting little-known stories of Hatteras, Reginald Fessenden, is uh, one of the true radio pioneers, though his, his story has largely been lost. Marconi is often given more credit. In 1902, among his many achievements, Fessenden transmitted the first musical notes by radio that were ever received elsewhere. He had a, he had a facility on Hatteras, and then he had one up on Roanoke Island, and he transmitted the first musical notes from, uh, from Hatteras on up there. Another one, General Billy Mitchell in 1923, he was bound and determined to to teach everyone of the efficacy of air power and was finding very little support among the the top Navy brass, the top Army brass. And he set up a couple demonstrations. The first one wasn't convincing enough, so he set up another one off of uh, of Hatteras and bombed a couple of... uh, Confiscate, well, confiscated ships and mothballed ships and very quickly established the superiority. There's now a Billy Mitchell uh, airfield there, and that, that's 
that's another of those little-known stories, but it's a good one. You, some of you may know this fellow. This is David Stick. He wrote uh, probably the most famous books on the Outer Banks. One is The Outer Banks of North Carolina. The other is The Graveyard of the Atlantic. He wrote a dozen books. Those are the two best known. He gave me, uh, he gave me an interview for the, the book, and it, it, was ter- it was terrific. He, he said I could have an hour, but we went out to his place, and he gave us three hours. And we talked and talked, and it was, it was a terrific interview. Afterwards, I sent him a couple of chapters, one on him. I ended up writing, the, the interview was so good, I wrote a chapter on him, and, and another, another on the formation of the Cape Hatteras National Seashore, in which both he and his father were instrumental. The, uh, he, he has a reputation for being sort of a stickler on details, and he doesn't like historians who don't get every factual detail correct. He thought my chapter on him was was nailed. It was good. And a lot of my other chapter was pretty good, but he said I had been misled by a couple of sources on the founding of the seashore. And he said, uh, he wrote me, it's still the best uh, criticism I've ever received. He said, your version of the facts is one with which I am not familiar. So he alerted me to an unpublished manuscript he had on the formation of the uh, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, and I, I made a few changes. <laughs> but he was a tri- Anyway, uh, Mr. Stick died Memorial Day weekend at age 89. I, uh, I, wrote, I wrote a piece for the Norfolk newspaper on, uh, on this visit and, uh, and used that line, which I will always remember. Mm. <laughs> This, is, uh, this gives you an idea of Cape Hatteras National Seashore. It was controversial when it was de- developed, setting aside much, roughly two-thirds of the island, if you include various other park elements. And it's, it cannot be developed. It's public land. There, it's controversial now because there are a number of restrictions on where you can and cannot go because of uh, endangered species and environmental concerns and the beach access people and the park people are at loggerheads. And there's, but it, there's no question that the seashore has kept the, the island in the fashion you see it is today. You see what happened at other places where the land is not set aside. It's uh, developers come in and they, they put up whatever they want. Uh, mostly wings, I think, is what goes up... Uh, <laughs> But this is, this is one of the main reasons that I believe Hatteras is actually unique, and it's because two-thirds of the island is set aside in that sense. The two iconic images of Hatteras to me are fishing and the lighthouse. This is a photograph from 1950. And when we went to put a, uh, put a book together, there was no question what we were going to put on the cover, by the way. It's a no-brainer. We were talking earlier about erosion. This is actually... Uh, in the 90s, the ocean was coming closer and closer. It was a big controversy about what to do. They tried, they tried things for years, sandbags, a, a going. They, they tried all sorts of things. Finally, they came to the conclusion they should move it. Very controversial. A lot of people fought it, but they did. Uh, they put it on tracks, and they rolled the thing a little more than half a mile, about six-tenths of a mile. And it was national news. It was worldwide news. There were... Tens of thousands of people there watching it. This here is the old location 
and off in the distance you can see the new location. It was moved 2,900 feet. It's still about 1,600 feet from the ocean. It was moved southwest. And it should, they figure it'll be safe uh, for another century. It is the, uh, the nation's oldest, uh, I mean the nation's largest lighthouse and sort of a symbol of the island. This is, these are just photographs to give you an idea of how physical and uh, environment-related Hatteras is. The, the culture is very physical, outdoorsy. Uh, and this, and I'm running out of time, I'm trying to, trying to race through this, but I will do it. Um, these are, the, the, the other issue other than environment is always development. Now in Hatteras, as with any of these other places, it's, it's, there's a, a culture that somebody on Topsail described to me as the got miners. You know, I got mine, I don't want anybody else on the island. That's it. <laughs> Uh, some people call it the blow up the bridge mentality. I got across the bridge, let's blow it up. Nobody else there. And you can see Hatteras has far less of this than many other, uh, other islands, many other parts. Uh, Wrightsville is much more developed north of Hatteras and the Kitty Hawk, Kill Level Hills, uh, Nags Head area is more developed. But you do have this, the small old home and then the, the larger one right there. This gives you an idea, too, of... On the beach there, in, this is in Frisco, are these uh, what, what the, is derisively termed McMansions or mini motels by people who were be there before they were built. And of course here, Hatteras uh, fishing piers are incredible. The, the sand is uneven and sinks and the, the currents and the winds. And so all the piers look like roller coasters. <laughs> And so far, they haven't fallen in, but uh, it's, that, that's, that's a, a good representation of the old and the new. So that's, I, I think I have finished almost on time. I'm pretty close to on time. So I'm supposed to, at this point, open it up to questions, and uh, how do we do that? Can you tell me how we? Okay. Okay. Thank you. We have two people with roving microphones, and I think you are supposed to come up to them. We'll go to them. Oh, no, no. See, I've gotten this wrong. You, you really can't trust anything in the book now, can you, either? Hey, Ray. You need to get... Ray? Yes. Give Vicki some credit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I do need to do that. Uh, the, the, the photographs and all this... Thank you. The photographs and the, the current photographs in all these books are by my wife, Vicki. Um, and that's all three books. And in fact, we're working on a fourth one when I can get, get some time to do it. And she really does deserve a lot of credit. This is one of her many photographs. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, the one thing we did better than David Stick, we have a better cover photograph than he does, even though it's somewhat similar because you can actually see the stripes on ours, though the sun is behind it at sunset. So that's Vicky's doing, not mine. How come yeah. the county system in North Carolina runs east and west? So if you're in Ocracoke and want to go to the county seat, you've got to go way up to Manio, across, over, and down. It's a whole day's trip. Do you know why the Outer Banks are not a county by themselves, but the counties, Dare and Hyde, I think it is, right. run yeah, east and yes. west? 
Yes. Um, no, but that's true. I, I don't know why. Uh, to answer the question, I don't know why, but it is true that they're, they're split. Uh, Dare County is part and Hyde, and I don't. So this is going well, I think. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. I'm wondering if your book, uh, Reflections, is still available. There, I actually have some, she asked if Reflections, which was a collection of newspaper columns from 1995, is still available. I actually have some that I take to the Bazaar Bazaar in, in December. So if you're at the Bazaar Bazaar, there are not many. We, uh, we printed 10,000 and sold a good number. And then my publisher, who was a local, local man who came to us and said, can we reproduce some of your columns? And we set it up. He stored them under his deck. <laughs> who knew it would ever rain? It's you. You mentioned that surf fishing was so popular. Do you have any, or have you heard any theories that you think have any validity as to why the fishing is so poor now off the beach relative to what it was 20, 30 years ago? I have, and I, I don't know how much of it is fishermen's tales, but it, they do say fishing is, and I'm not a fisherman, although I like fishing beers, but they, they do say that surf fishing is down. Commercial fishing, I can tell you, is down because, say, the fishermen of all the regulations that are really sort of strangling them. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the Atlantic Ocean is being fished down. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but that is true. That they have said that. Of course, I think the, the, the economy of these islands all have switched more to tourism, too. I, find, I remember when I was writing about Topsail, the fishermen were lamenting that a, uh, a walkway had been put in. Uh, which I, I think is a, a terrific feature. It's a walkway, but they said it took out all the parking for fishermen. So I don't know. I, I think fishermen are, I talk with a lot on Hatteras, and they're bemoaning the fate, but fishing is sort of falling off a little. Yes? Um, trivia with a capital T. Do you have any idea why they don't export Hatteras-style clam chowder? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. They, they, they do transport uh, the, the lighthouse for every possible conceivable marketing purpose. So I would think you put clam chowder with a, with, sure, with a, with a Hatteras lighthouse on it, you'd sell it for sure. I don't know. I would not have anticipated many of these questions. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, some of, us, some of us have had a sometime love affair with ochre coke. Do you have any plans to write about ochre coke? I wonder if I should tell and blow the sea. Yes, um, that's, that's the one I'm working on now. So, and it's, uh, it's interesting because ochre coke actually has some better books written about it than these other places. These other places I've found some amateur his histories that are really not very good except they're somewhat useful for information. Okra Coke has had a few books about it, but everybody's, they're sort of, when are you going to have the Okra Coke book? And I said, well, you know, it's not even research yet, let alone written. Uh, I, I edit a magazine in town, and it's, it takes a little more time than I thought it was. So I was hoping Okra Coke would come out next spring or summer. I'm not sure it will. It might be the year after. 
but but definitely yes. They just had a big fireworks tragedy down there. I don't know if uh, everybody's nodding their heads, so I guess you do know about it. But no, Ocracoke's terrific and different from every other place. Um, you said that they filled in the Isabel Inlet, correct? Do they mm-hmm. do that with every storm? If the, if an inlet does wash up, you know, with any kind of inlet, or do they look to maybe open that up to, for an attraction or, you know, possible other fishing sites? Or? The, no. Mostly they fill them in. That, I mean, that was dramatic. Uh, Hatteras actually was – Hatteras's boundaries were formed in 1846 by a hurricane that actually – created the inlet at the southern end, which is Hatteras Inlet, and the inlet at the northern end, which is Oregon Inlet. There have been some that have filled in now and then. I know down in Wrightsville, for instance, the, the, the Wrightsville is actually a combination of, well, three islands, but two of them were filled in some years ago because they, they needed the property. I think they, they tend to just let these things go unless they become too bad. There's a sense that they're the next inlet to open will probably be just north of Rodanthe, where it is often, uh, after every storm, sand clogs the road and has to be bulldozed out of the way. And that's sort of a sense that there is, uh, that'll be the next to open. And there's, there's one south of Avon, which is uh, a narrow area, too. I don't know. I guess it depends on economics. If that was a very expensive storm for everybody, and filling it in cost a lot. Anybody else? No? Well, well, thank you so much.